0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Professor Silke Gillison, a medical oncologist and head of the Department of Medical Oncology at Universita della Svizzera Italiana, also known as the USI in Lugano, Switzerland, and director of the Oncology Institute of Southern Switzerland in Bellinzona. In this episode, we're going to focus on Silky's fascinating career in medical oncology and delve into the work she's done with medical professional societies, such as the European Society for Medical Oncology, or ESMO. Silky completed her training in Basel and St. Gallen, both in Switzerland, of course, as well as at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, in the good old US of A. After returning to Switzerland, she built up the Medical Oncology Unit for Genitourinary Cancers and headed the Clinical Research Unit for Oncology and Hematology in Cantonspital St. Gallen. Alongside this, Silky served for two terms as president of the Swiss Group for Clinical Cancers Research. and She also chaired the European Organization for the Research and Treatment of Cancer Genitourinary Cancers Group. And she's founded the Advanced Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference, One Busy Lady. In 2018, Silky became the Genito-Urinary Cancer Systemic Therapy Research Chair at the University of Manchester here in the UK and Honorary Consultant at the Christie Hospital, also in Manchester. And she also continues to work as consultant in the Department of Oncology and Hematology at the Canton Spital St. Gallen. In January 2020, Silky was appointed head of the Department of Medical Oncology with a full professorship at the USI in Lugano and director of the aforementioned Oncology Institute where she currently works. However, alongside her many academic and research roles, Silky has dedicated her time to numerous oncology societies acting as Chair of the ESMO Guidelines Committee for Genitourinary Malignancies from 2018 to 2020. She's been a member of the Scientific Committee for the ESMO Guidelines since 2021, a track chair for Prostate Cancer for ESMO Asia since 2020, and has recently been selected as the Scientific Chair for the ESMO Award Congress 2023. Aside from her absolutely extraordinary career, Silky loves modern art, romantic churches, and hiking in the mountains. We're delighted to have Silky here with us today, and I look forward to hearing more about her fascinating career and the amazing work she has done. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Silky Gillison. I'm always interested in origin stories. You completed your training in Basel, St Gallen, the Dana-Farber, as I mentioned. Can you please tell us what initially attracted you to genitourinary as a specialty
1: yeah in reality it started quite early so um it was in my first clinical year that i did after medical school when i was in davos so uh there um you know obviously um uh, a skiing resort but it has also hospitals so i i was working in one of these hospitals and we had this really lovely patient who had a metastatic uh, prostate cancer and um it was really in that time, I think it was about 1995, you know, we, we really had only ADT available as a treatment for these patients. And, you know, it was so sad and, and you wanted to offer him more. And, um, and that's when I started to become really interested in, in prostate cancer. And, um, and that's where I, I guess first time I had a bit the idea I want to go in that direction.
0: It's so often there's one patient, one teacher or or both that influence careers and uh, and motivate us. Thanks for sharing that. So I said in my introduction, you've worked in Switzerland, the USA, the UK, you've got international positions with medical professional societies. What are the differences and similarities that you've seen uh, in access to care, uh, adoption of guidelines, receptivity to overseas research in these different countries?
1: Three very different countries to work in, but I have to say that in the U.S. I've never worked clinically. I've worked like in a lab, so I've went to the uh, tumor boards, but I haven't really worked there, so that's dif- more difficult for me to to say. So in Switzerland, I have to say uh, we are very fortunate, right? Because until now we have really quite easy access to most of the approved substances. And um, that's obviously I I see that really um, as uh, like really fortunate, you know, when I compare to my colleagues in Europe, especially now I'm very close to Italy and I see that they have much more restrictions. The UK was different again, right? Because, you know, I mean, with with your fantastic accent, you know, maybe also nice. Um, And there are much, I think, much more strict, let's say, to to give access or not access to new drugs um, and and that's quite interesting but also obviously it's making it probably more fair to everyone
0: of course back when britain was part of the of europe um, there was i think more opportunities for for the interchange of, of, of access and access to medical care is It's an issue anywhere in the world for whatever reason, distance from doctors, number of doctors, availability of drugs, availability of money. And it's always struck me that, you know, a border between two countries is something artificial and it's egregious that patients can't get access. And I think it falls upon us to try and change that. So when you finished your training, you dedicated your time to building the medical oncology unit for genitourinary cancer, the Canton Spital St. Gallen. Talk us through your inspiration to do this. I mean, starting a new program at a hospital ain't for the faint of heart. What did it take to organize the unit and what have been your proudest accomplishments?
1: Yeah, good question. You know, at that time, I I mean, I have to say, you know, I I like collaboration. So I was also lucky in the way that we had, you know, the disciplined people who really wanted to collaborate to to improve the, the care of our patients. I guess one of the, you know, the, even if it sounds very modest, but the, the proudest accomplishments of that time was that there was quite a negative view of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for bladder cancer when I started. And, you know, but there were these data that you you have a uh, survival benefit. And, you know, it took quite some time to, let's say, convince the urologists that, you know, to, to discuss these patients in the tumor boards uh, before operating them, and and I think that was was quite nice, you know, when we um, arrived at that, that you know, like some maybe a year or two later, like really every patient was discussed, and I think that was the one of of the nicest things, you know, like um, even if if it sounds small, it was it was a big step for this collaboration. Yeah,
0: well, having been involved in starting programs my, myself, I know that you're being humble because. Very often, it feels like you're herding cats or pushing rocks up a hill or pushing cats up a hill. I don't know, it's, <laughs> very, it's very hard work, but I'm sure the patients that you have served are very grateful that you did. So I mentioned your foray into British medicine in about five years back. You made you know a collaboration with Manchester, started working at the University of Manchester and the Christie Hospital, very famous cancer hospital. What inspired this? And we talked a little bit previously about uh, you and I, about doing research in the UK. What, what were the good things about working there?
1: No, I, I think the fantastic thing, you know, like it really in the UK for me is that they have this willingness and, and interest to perform academic clinical trials as well, right? I think it gets so complicated in a lot of other countries and, and really the UK is, I think they're really for me, at least, um, probably one of the countries that is really, really strong. We saw that again in COVID, right? Like, if the English want to do clinical trials and, and academic clinical trials, what well, is really difficult, it is working uh, because also the patients are very motivated. And that was really one of the inspirations to to go there. It was really, for me fantastic how the patients were interested themselves, you know, to go into clinical trials. whereas you don't feel that mentality so often in other countries.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny because um, just before you and I jumped on this call, um, I, I was talking to a colleague about uh, some work um, that we're collaborating on together and we were complaining about all the barriers. So, uh, yeah, it's... The, I, I think, what do they say? The other man's grass is, or the other woman's grass is not always greener.
1: Yeah, maybe it takes longer to start the trial, right? But once a trial is running, you have really that I, I have the feeling that the patients really themselves will want to participate in these trials. I, I see your point. It wasn't always easy to start you know, because with all the regulations and it's quite slow, I mean, before you can open it, right? But then when you have opened it, I mean, it's really amazing how many patients you have in a short time.
0: Yeah, well, I guess, you know, we have a, a single provider system over here, which makes it easier. I worked in the United States and and that was problematic. And, you know, you can have a single IRB, a single ethical review board. So that can make it easier, I guess. But um, look, at the present moment in the world, it's, if anything is difficult in healthcare, it's all got harder. Um, but let, let's let stay on the positive. You, you've had an incredibly prolific career. You've been involved in several key European oncology societies that have truly international reach. As a surgeon, I practiced in the United States and, and UK And although urology is not my specialty, I know that the management of prostate cancer is different on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, For reasons not entirely based on data, shall we say, how do you believe evidence-based medicine can best influence adoption of the sort of guidelines that ESMO develops and distributes and that you've been intimately involved with, Silky?
1: That's a good question, again. The thing is, I guess, the, the big centers probably have already started using guidelines. You know, I guess in the U.S., it's more the NCCN guidelines. In, in Europe, it, it's more the ESMO guidelines. Or for urology, also the, the EU guidelines that are very strong. It's obviously also mostly like that, that the Americans approve new drugs easier or, or, or also faster um, than the Europeans. So so that's probably why also sometimes the guidelines are not exactly the same, because obviously you have also to take a bit in consideration what is approved. I I mean, um, I think there are things that are a bit different between the US and and Europe. So now how can you do it that people really adopt it? Um, I guess once is obviously education, education, education. Um, That's one thing. Then the other thing is probably really, you know, the incentives. So if someone gets a lot of money for describing the wrong drug, um, that's a problem. So it's also a bit our system sometimes that may be not always the best to optimize care. Let's put it that way. And the other thing is obviously guidelines is one thing but then you need approval and you don't need only approval but you also need uh, someone to pay for the drugs and and here i think i see now as you mentioned right them um, our health systems getting more and more costly and and here i i see the biggest problems coming right because a lot of countries sometimes EMA approves the drug but then the the single countries Cannot afford to also pay for the drug, so so I guess you know there there is our discrepancies between also guidelines um, and what is then really possible in the countries what patients have access to.
0: Yeah, you know it it's funny about time to market. It used to be that companies would uh, look at Europe uh, first and then the United States, but. Uh, with the changes, certainly in the device world, I mean, it's become much harder in Europe now than it is in the United States. And I noticed that Switzerland has decided to adopt FDA as their regulatory body, which is absolutely fascinating, Um, shifting sands. Let's get into uh, some of the specifics of your research. Um, You've had a focus on precision oncology and novel treatments for prostate, testicular and penile cancers. Tell us what what you mean by precision oncology and then maybe dig into those three specifics.
1: What I'm always kind of fascinated in is that we should try to find the ideal optimal treatment for an individual patient. And th- this is kind of, I think, is, is not very original. I think a lot of people think like that. But how can you avoid toxicity of a drug that doesn't work in a patient who doesn't profit from that drug? So so I think this is the idea of, of precision oncology, as you know really well, that you really try to find, um, especially if you have more now, like, I, I want just to dig maybe in, in, in prostate cancer, right? In prostate cancer, we have done a, really a lot of um, progress. We have had a lot of progress. We have a lot of drugs available. So now it becomes critical with which treatment you start. And there, I think we really have to also become much better to find out um, which are patients profiting from which treatment in which sequence. And I really have the feeling that we are kind of in the beginning for for prostate cancer. Uh, Testicular cancer is something different because in reality, that's not so much precision oncology in a way that we have in metastatic disease, uh, chemotherapies that work amazingly well. Um, In reality, we have never understood why this is the only solid cancer that we can cure in the majority of patients, even if they are metastatic. Um, so so I think, you know, this is the, a bit the point. Um, but, you know, precision medicine, you usually we, we see that. But then there is also another point that is maybe more like individualizing treatment by really looking at the, tr- at the patient, you know, because we have more and more patients who are more and more also elderly, again I, I speak mostly about prostate cancer, who have a lot of comorbidities, you know. Now, in these patients, maybe the maximal therapy that we usually use in our clinical trials may not be the best treatment. So so right now we I think we also, in, in a time where we also should think or start thinking about also about, again, de-escalating treatment, you know, in some patients who have a very good prognosis, for example. So, so I guess, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to do.
0: What, what about ways that experts like you and societies like ESMO can help support patients who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis and help educate general practitioners to drive referrals sooner and and more appropriately in the right direction, if you will.
1: Yes. So ASMO, I mean, um, is is doing a, a lot of um, leaflets um, educations for patients. So I think this is really helpful. Also, that's the feedbacks we are getting from patients. So they can read. I, I, also, a lot of other societies, like here, is the Swiss Cancer Society, by for example. Um, are really giving a lot of information to patients. And I think that's that's really helpful. Um, there's also the other part, you know, that we really do patient empowerment so that we really um, inform patients about, for example, studies, like that we also make the informed contents in a way that a, a patient really can understand them. I, I guess there the UK is, is really also really, really good um, in my eyes and i think this is this is important what can i do specifically i think when i talk to patients i i hope um you know you can really help them in a one to one way and, and also not only the patients but also all the caregivers around the patient and and then as you know and you you mentioned it one thing that we wanted to try to do is um that we have this consensus meeting this APCCC that's gonna take part um again in April 2024 where we really like first involve also patients but we have a consensus meeting where we discuss the more more burning questions um where we don't have good data so I think this is maybe another way where like we make a consensus meeting with all experts worldwide or a a lot of uh, experts worldwide in these tricky situations and then make a manuscript so that a, let's say a physician, an oncologist or urologist who doesn't treat only one disease and maybe is a broad, for example, oncologist can read and see how the experts would treat in a specific situation where we don't have high level evidence. And I really hope that that's going to help to, to like increase the level um, of treatment for, or management uh, for most patients.
0: Yeah. Uh, I remember an advertisement years ago in the United States. It was for a men's clothing store. And the hook line was, our best customer is a well-informed customer. And I've always thought that so applies to healthcare Patients need to have realistic expectations. And the more we can do to help educate patients, not in a patronizing way, and not in a way that, you know, we use, listen, we use jargon a lot. And if you're not in our particular club, you may not understand the jargon. I have a friend who's a a financier, and he can lose me in 30 seconds. I won't know what he's talking about because I don't know the jargon. So, Yeah, I think, and if we do better, then we'll have better informed and better able patients. So I want to get into a couple of specifics. Last year, you co-authored a paper entitled Treatment Landscape for Patients with Castration-Resistant Prostate Cancer, Patient Selection and Unmet Clinical Needs. Could you tell our listeners about your research findings and the conclusions that you came to? And again, please bear in mind that the majority of people who listen to us are healthcare practitioners, but not all are. Some are interested members of the lay public. Um, so maybe frame, you can uh, frame your answer uh, in that context.
1: Castration-resistant prostate cancer is the, the stage of prostate cancer where um, patients don't respond any longer to hormonal treatment. and And there we have had, again, a lot of successes in the in the last years, um, the question is now how, you know, to choose the best option, a bit like we talked before, for the individual patient. And, and this is what we discussed in the paper, what are the options, um, how should you select patients, um, and really try to focus on the patient, and where are the gaps that we're having, and and as you know well, um, as we discussed also a bit before now, we have more and more patients that are elderly, that have a lot of comorbidities, other diseases, um, and and there is the question, you know, shouldn't we make more pragmatic clinical trials where we really include these normal day patients and not hyper selected, very, very fit patients where every value in the laboratory is normal. So so I think, you know, this is maybe I think the biggest gap that we have right now, that we have a lot of good data, a lot of clinical trials, big clinical trials showing, let's say, the the benefit of one treatment versus the other. But usually these trials are done in quiet selective patients. And I have the feeling that we should have more trials that have a more realistic patient population, um, elderly patients, patients more than 80, because I see so many patients that are 80 and more years old and they are some of them are really fit. But these patients were not treated in in the trials. So in reality, we don't really know if they can benefit as much as a younger patient or what happens with the not so fit 81 year old. Uh, I mean, can we extrapolate the data from this fit young population? And I think this is is the kind of trials I think we should do more and more, like more pragmatic, um, not so much selection.
0: I saw on the USI website a statement from you about metastatic prostate cancer. It's a huge challenge to both medicine and research. So I've lost friends to this devastating disease, um, and there's a comment about your research concentrating on finding ways to optimize both the treatment and quality of life for these patients, which is also critically important. Can you expand on that for us, please?
1: So a lot of my patients with prostate cancer would say that, you know, for them, sometimes, again, these are often elderly patients, the only benefit and overall survival is not that important. But they tell me that for them, it's more important that they can maintain the quality of life. And I think that is something we have to to value. Uh, because it, it's coming from the patients, where sometimes we, we we are so concentrated on prolonging survival that we we can or tend to forget also about the quality of life, and I, I think that is is really important, and that's why also what we discussed before, right? Um we are now thinking in the EO, with the EOTC and Bertrand um about a trial where we want to see if we could make treatment. Breaks without losing um, efficacy, because in that idea, you know that when you have a, pre, pre, uh, a break in your treatment, uh, especially if it's hormonal treatment, maybe you can recover in in the meantime, and then you can restart um, when we see that that the PSA is again progressing. So, so again, as I as I said, maybe in some patients, for the quality of life, it would be good if it would start to de-escalate a bit the treatment.
0: We know about various biomarkers, prostate-specific antigen, uh, alpha-fetoprotein, and so on. And I know you're keen on seeing more biomarker-driven clinical trials and to further personalize medicine in prostate cancer using molecular-targeted drugs and immunotherapy. Can you um, talk us through that, please?
1: Yeah, there is, um, right now there's a lot of uh, discussions also about, you know, the BARP inhibitors in, uh, in prostate cancer. So I, I don't know how familiar everyone here on the, in the audience is with it, but uh, we found that also prostate cancer patients have these um, BRCA mutations, for example, or other alterations in DNA repair genes were known much more for for patients with breast cancer and ovarian cancer for a long time. Um, And so we we have now really the first data since maybe three, four years, um, showing that in patients who have these mutations, that uh, these BARP inhibitors can really work also very well for prostate cancer patients. And these are clearly these biomarker-driven clinical trials that have brought a lot of benefit for some patients. So um, for the moment, this is not a huge percentage of the patients, maybe 15-20%, but, but still, you know, it, it's already a, a step um, that we have, have done in prostate cancer.
0: You know, I think back um, to uh, how during my, my lifetime, my professional lifetime, how this has changed, how dramatically this has changed. I'm sure it will continue and the pace will accelerate, certainly with people like you involved. So that takes me up to my last question, which I ask all our guests, if a magic genie popped up and granted you three wishes in your field of healthcare, what might they be?
1: (laughs) To be honest, even if I would be out of a job, I would really love if uh, cancer is gone for good. So that would be only one wish.
0: It's a pretty good one, <laughs> it's a pretty good one. So no others, you're not going to push and take advantage of the two, o- two others on offer?
1: No, you know you know that nice table that sometimes you should be afraid of your own wishes. So I'd stay with one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> smart lady, a very smart lady. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Professor Silke Gillison. It's fantastic to hear from someone with such insights and such amazing energy. And thank you for all you do for patients. My my late dad had prostate cancer. I lost one of my closest friends way too early uh, from this wretched disease. Um, and it's been a, a great pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. And yes, and I really, I think we, we should really try to work much harder that um, we can avoid these losses. So.
0: Yes, you're right. So uh, folks, please check out the show notes. We're gonna put some stuff in there about the good professor so you can learn more. And um, we're gonna promote the meeting that she was talking about in Lugano. Not that one needs a, a reason to visit that beautiful place, but April, 2024, there you go. And folks, please check out the archives. There's loads more podcasts hidden in there. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends, and also, please join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakya. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.